Esther 4, 13b through 14. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Lord God, we submit ourselves to the authority of your holy word in our lives, asking that your spirit would open our eyes and soften our hearts to hear from you today. Show us Jesus, teach us the gospel, make us your people so that we would be involved in communicating the goodness and glory of your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So you know in those home makeover shows where they do the big reveal at the end and they remind you of how boring and pathetic the house looked before, kind of like yours and mine, and how it looks absolutely amazing now, like something out of a magazine or a makeover show. And then they do this big reveal of this new amazing house slash life and the couple cries because their domestic dreams have come true and it's going to fix their marriage and their kids will start obeying and to top it all off, they're going to live forever next door to their new BFFs, Chip and Joanna Gaines. Well, this is like that, but not (laughs) because it's many thousands of years earlier and there's no new kitchen no obedient children, and no Chip and Joanna. But in chapter 7 in our story in Esther, it's definitely an important do-or-die moment where the future of God's people hangs in the balance. So it's time for Esther to make the big reveal. But first, a word from our sponsors. Just kidding. Let me just bring you up to speed in our story first. Evil Haman has written a decree that was sealed with the king's own ring that all the Jews should be destroyed and plundered on a certain day just months from now. But the king doesn't even know that his own queen is Jewish. So the king has, in effect, given evil Haman the authority to kill his own queen and her people, and he doesn't even know it. This is a plan that Haman's been working to unhatch against God's people for five years. Because he was an Amalekite, and there was this long-standing conflict between his people and Esther's people. (laughs) But again, the king seemed oblivious to it all. Meanwhile, Queen Esther and her own people have been fasting and praying for three days. And on the third day, Esther approaches the king, and she receives favorable promise from him. He says, I promise you up to half of my kingdom. So she invited him and Haman to a feast that same day where the king repeated his promise. But Esther says, so come to another feast tomorrow. And I promise to tell you the specifics of my request. This was such a big request and such an important issue that apparently it required two feasts. Now, overnight, In the time between the two feasts, two things happen that are important for the story. On the way home from the first feast, evil Haman sees Mordecai at the king's gate. And Mordecai 
doesn't bow down to him like the rest of the people there did. Because, I mean, listen, Haman is second in command to the king. He's a big deal. But Mordecai doesn't bow down. So Haman is furious and he goes home to build a gallows on which to hang Mordecai, who, by the way, is the queen's own uncle and also Jewish. Meanwhile, the king couldn't sleep. So he has the king's chronicles read to him. And he discovers that this same Mordecai had previously saved his own life and was never honored for it. So he commands, get this, of all people, he commands Haman, who thinks he is the one being honored. The king commands Haman to march Mordecai around the city in the king's robes and on the king's chariots while declaring, thus shall it be done to the man the king delights to honor. So in case you're not quite tracking, in a story that doesn't use the name of God, but that is in a book about God revealing himself, and that we're covering in a sermon series called The Hidden King Delivers, a scene where the bad guy decides to kill one of the good guys, being immediately followed by a scene where the bad guy ends up being forced to honor that same good guy. That's called foreshadowing. So here's the big reveal. Esther chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. Neither the king nor Haman knew what was about to happen here. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again, notice the word again there, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Now, Queen Esther's no dummy. Think about how the request that she's about to make here has been unfolding. When she first received a favorable response from the king the day before, she wisely threw a feast where the king repeated his promise to grant her up to half the kingdom. And then she asked him and Haman to return for this second feast where, what do you know, the king repeats his promise for a third time. So we're two feasts into Esther's request because not only does she know that the stomach is the way to a man's heart, but she has, in effect, forced the king to publicly promise her up to half his kingdom three times on two straight days. And even though he has assured her of his positive response, and it may seem like a done deal at this point, this is actually a very tenuous moment. Because she's not just asking for more gold and wealth and governing power like like most such requests that are made before the king. This isn't just, you know, I could really use a house in Aspen and a 17th personal assistant whose job it is to feed me Oreos and peanut butter cups. This is Esther asking to somehow undo Haman's edict to kill the Jews, which was sealed with the king's ring and was therefore a law that couldn't be repealed. So in this tenuous moment, Esther's the only one who knows what hangs in the balance. And the king and Haman were clueless. So, deep breath. 
Here it goes. Verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, like you've already said twice, O great, kindly, and beneficent king of the entire world who would kill me with the word if he wanted, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, more deference there, let my life be granted me for my wish. Which is a way of saying that her very life was in danger. My wish is to stay alive, she says. Let my life be granted me for my wish. And then she extends it to her people and my people for my request. And then she explains, verse 4. For we have been sold, I and my people. Notice she identifies with and refers to her own people, but not yet by name. We have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. The exact words used in Haman's previous edict, which, by the way, may have sort of pricked his ears a little bit there. But also notice this. We have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If I'm king at that moment, I'm thinking, who would dare to sell my queen's people to be destroyed? She's using her words carefully here. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent for our affliction is not to be compared with a loss of the king, to the king. More deference and humility here. She's saying we're willing to live under your authority, but, but this is a bigger deal than that. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. And then his response, verse 5. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? So far, so good. <laughs> the king is already against whomever has dared to threaten the queen's people without even knowing who her people are. And Esther said, verse 6 a foe, and enemy. And here's the big reveal. This wicked Haman. Boom. It's this guy right here, sitting right here, your second in command, that guy. Crickets. There had to at least be a good two to three seconds of the most awkward silence ever where the king is doing that sort of Kanye, SMH meme like, <sighs> Haman. Esther has just carried out the biggest mic drop, mic drop moment ever. Many years before, Luke, I am your father, and I see dead people. This was something no one expected, especially the king and Haman. So look at Haman's response. Keep reading. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen because dude just got played. And notice he was terrified before the king and queen because she out Haman to Haman. Well, she out Jewished Haman or out Jesus him or something like that. This is the undoing of evil. Like Genesis 50 verse 20 says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. If I'm Esther in that moment, I'm dancing to myself like, what Haman meant for evil, God meant for good. But I'm sure she was proper and queenly and distinguished. So, it's wicked Haman. Mic drop. 
Haman is terrified because his plan has clearly come out and is totally unraveling before him. So verse seven, and the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. Now kids, this is like when daddy is so frustrated that he has to go do something with a power tool to remind himself that he has at least a semblance of competence and control in his life. So the, so the king goes to the garage, but it was for more than just to blow off steam. Like, how is he going to get out of this fiasco? How is the king going to get out of this fiasco? Because think about it. How can he punish Haman for a plot he himself approved? If he does so, he would have to admit his own role in the fiasco. But keep reading, because something happens next that will be coming out for the king. So the king was out in his garage thinking, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. So Haman was falling at Esther's feet to beg for mercy, which is not only ironic because it's the king who determines his fate and not Esther, but Haman is now clearly appealing to Esther because she is the one with the control. She is his only hope. The one who just seconds ago was the second most powerful person on the planet is now begging for mercy at the feet of a young woman who not very long ago was an unknown peasant Jewish girl. But Haman, he makes a big mistake here because there were actually very serious protocols that dictated that no one could ever be alone in the presence of a woman from the king's harem, let alone the queen herself. There were rules that said that a man was in violation if he came within seven feet of a woman in the king's harem, which means, by the way, y'all, that social distancing clearly isn't new. Ha! So, Haman is groveling at Esther's feet, begging for mercy, which is a serious social distancing violation against not just the queen, but the king himself. Look at verse eight. And the king returned from the palace garden. He comes back from the garage to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, which meant that the king had valid reason now to put Haman to death. There was a precedent for that historically. It was a part of the laws. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house, as the word left the mouth of the king, which is ancient Near Eastern speak for thus saith the king, thus hath this been decreed. So as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face because, well, you know what happens next. Then Harbona, verse 9, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, which is a weird translation, but it's basically just saying that one of the eunuchs who was there and who was attending to the king said with a stroke of ironic genius, moreover, not only has Haman schemed against the queen and her people, but he says, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai whose word saved the king, that is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. Notice that whereas before, throughout the rest of the book of Esther, those shouting advice to the king were constantly leading him astray. 
now the tables have turned and some random standby no one eunuch makes the king aware that Haman had built a gallows for Queen Esther's uncle Mordecai just the night before. And so the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And the wrath of the king abated. The king's anger was assuaged, was lessened. So here are a few helpful lessons for us today. You don't have to... You don't have to have been faithful in your past in order to be faithful in the next moment. So there's a long tradition of interpreting Esther's big reveal, not just as an unveiling of Haman as evil, but also as an unveiling of her Jewish identity that she had been sort of overhiding. You see, while we perceive Esther as a heroine, and she, she is, she was, she's a heroine who had so, fur, so fully assimilated to the Persian culture that here we are five years into her being queen and nobody had any idea that she is anything other than Persian. In fact, it's likely she had broken many of the major commandments and just about all of the Jewish ceremonial and dietary laws as part of being a Persian queen, which makes sense because she's, well, she's in a harem in an entirely non-Jewish Persian culture where Jewish laws and feasts are not practiced. And she was in a royal court where we already know godly wisdom is not normal and unsavory things were pretty common historically. So to hide her nationality and especially her religious practices successfully while living so intimately among pagans probably took some real work for Esther. Think about it. Everyone knew Mordecai was Jewish, which is what triggered Haman to scheme and to destroy the, the Jews in the first place. But Esther had been so well assimilated to the wider culture that no one had any clue. Which means, think about it. Esther knew full well, in fact, better than anyone else, that she had been unfaithful to her own religious traditions and she had become fully assimilated to the surrounding culture. Nonetheless, she knew in this moment what was the right and good and faithful thing to do. Esther didn't let the faithlessness of her past become the voice of condemnation that kept her from being faithful in the next moment. And neither should you. Friends, when we're tempted to, to give up and to quit because we're very very aware of our failures. Just remember that past failures, which are covered by the cross of Christ, need no longer keep you from future faithfulness. Second thing that I think this teaches us, it's a lesson for us today, is that we need to communicate wisely, especially in controversy. There are a number of things Esther did that showed care and wisdom in approaching this delicate matter. First things first, <laughs> she asked her people to join her in prayer and fasting so that God would deliver and direct their steps. She threw not just one feast, but two, because she knows that the way up to a man's heart is his stomach. 
She showed humility and deference to the king in her approach to him many times. She waited until the time was right. She ensured that the king made his promise two extra times in addition to his initial favorable promise. She even slightly implicated the king when she said that her people had been sold. Esther was careful in a highly tenuous and controversial matter where lives were at stake. And while they didn't have COVID in ancient Persia, please, friends, take care to communicate, especially in controversy, with wisdom that comes from the same kind of process as Esther. We need to sort of Estherify our communications process by praying beforehand, showing humility, waiting till the time is right and our words are helpful. I mean, if Christians would just pray through and think through and reread a couple times before pressing enter, we could help matters instead of needlessly and cluelessly inflaming them. Frankly, none of us knows enough to be as definitive as we want. We know much, much less than we think we do. Which leads to our last lesson. God's got plans you can't manage, so let him because you're bad at it. (laughs) This is just a short lesson from Esther generally and is in line with things we've been saying throughout this whole series. Neither Esther nor Mordecai could possibly have coordinated their specific actions in a way that gets us to this outcome of chapter 7. Throughout the entire story of Esther, it's told in a way that shows that only an all-knowing and all-present God who is taking our lives and all of our histories somewhere good for his glory can manage that overall direction. So friends, let's take just a minute and think about this takeaway question. Are you being faithful, communicating wisely, and letting God manage what only he can? Friends, when we are refusing to let our past failures lead us, learning to be faithful in the next moment ahead of us, communicating wisely with care, and letting God manage what only he can, that's when God can use us in ways that will glorify him and advance his kingdom. Father in heaven, we want to be people whose lives are used by you for the sake of your goodness and glory because we understand that our joy is wrapped up in that kind of a vision for not just the world and the big picture directions that only you can manage, but also for our lives at an individual level. So we want to give ourselves to a vision, Lord, that that understands that the past failures that are covered by Jesus are not reason for us to not move forward in faith and do the next right thing that we know you've called us to. So strengthen us and equip us with the righteousness of Jesus lived for us that became a perfect sacrifice that we believe that that was actually the kind of sacrifice that we need to make up for everything that we've done in rebellion against you so that we can live in the here and now in ways that are faithful to the good and right things that we know you've called us to. Help us to do that, Lord, because we understand that Jesus is real that he's made up for our sins 
and that we have full atonement and can move forward in faith. Father, help us to communicate wisely and prayerfully and carefully so that the words we use, the things we type, our communications with others, Lord, would be about this same vision of Jesus' perfect sinless life. And Father, we ask that you would manage all of our, all of the particularities of our lives and the decisions we make so that you would continue to make your will happen, to advance your kingdom, to communicate your glory, to put the highlight on Jesus. Because Father, we understand that as you do that in our lives, we experience joy and peace that only you can bring. Help us, Lord, to live in ways that are about that kind of a vision for your glory, for this world, and for our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.